Good to see you this morning, and uh, PowerPoint's not working for me, so, uh, but you know, we need the power of God more than we need PowerPoint. <laughs> we need the prayer to reach heaven more than we need PowerPoint. We need to be right with God more than we need PowerPoint. We just need to hear from God this morning, and uh, we do have a marker board, and uh with the basic outline of the message on it, three words that we'll be looking for. I, I appreciate Brother Hovey the opportunity to preach. I take this uh, as a great privilege uh, to preach the Word of God anywhere, and to be here with you uh, is a great privilege. And uh, by the way, I want y'all to know, Brother Brother uh, Bogner, I want you to know especially you got a real Smart son-in-law. <laughs> uh, because on the day after we got here on Monday, um, I was going to run to town and pick up some goodies, you know. And so Aaron said, well, Dad, why don't you take the van? Because most of the kids want to go with you. So got in the van, cranked it up, and there's this little red light down there that said, 23 miles. <laughs> that was all the gas was left in it. So I told the kids, your daddy is very smart. <laughs> so the first stop was a service station. Yeah. Right. Uh, amen. <laughs> See, I didn't raise uh, someone who wasn't wise. <laughs> Uh, amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I love to pick on my sons, and uh, especially the oldest one. <laughs> By the way, Brother Jason, up there in uh, uh, Point Lay, Alaska, maybe you heard maybe the other day that they've opened up an ice road for the first time in the history of that fair Eskimo village. So, uh, he's making plans to go out to get some supplies for the first time. So uh, he told me last night he's, you know, he's praying about buying a vehicle and a trailer down in Anchorage and bringing enough lumber and supplies to replace the floor in the church building and to uh, uh, build on the house what he'd like to do. So he's praying about buying a vehicle. They've been looking into that, and uh, so and so he'll be. Uh, uh, going the ice road for the first time. It's a, the ice road is about uh, it's about 600 miles. The ice road to get to where he is, uh, and so uh, it'll uh, be a new experience. He has to have one other licensed driver with him. His one of his brother-in-laws is up there right now from uh, Louisiana, and he's a he's a licensed driver, so he'll be able to make that trip if we work that out. So pray for him. In that, that's kind of a uh, his his mother over here doesn't want to know when he's on it. <laughs> Just tell me when you get make it to the place, you know. And uh, so, amen. The only other way to get supplies there is on this little seven seater airplane, or in the summertime, there's a barge comes once a year and brings supplies. So, so. Pray for them in that. Turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture 
uh, this, this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, and Luke chapter 7, verse 19. And uh, we're going to be looking at looking, uh, the title of the message, The Lost Beatitude. Uh, Vance Havner, in one of his books years ago, he wrote a chapter about what he called The Lost Beatitude. So that's where that title comes from. And for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, you know, no other title uh, to have here. But Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, thank you for standing in honor of the Word of God this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus said unto them, Go and show John again these, those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. So there's the lost beatitude. We just don't spend a lot of time with it. We're familiar with the eight beatitudes or so in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Maybe you're familiar with the seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation, but this one we don't spend a lot of time with. Let's read in Luke chapter 7, <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, uh, starting with verse 19, the Holy Spirit has Luke to give us a little more information about how this played out here. Luke 7, verse 19, And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist, has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor. The gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Father, would you bless today the preaching of your word. We need your power and we need your presence and we need your blessing upon us. Lord, so that when we finish uh, this service this morning, our desire is to be able to look up to you in heaven and hear you say, well done. And no other motive today but that. Lord, I pray that you would empty us of this world, cleanse our hearts and minds, and make us into vessels that you can use. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today. We're trusting in you. We pray that you give us all ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The lost... Beatitude. And of course, as I mentioned, we're familiar with the Beatitudes of, of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and 
and uh, uh, the Beatitudes, the book of Revelation, and, and of course there are a few others scattered throughout the scripture. Uh, but we want to look today at the lost Beatitude. Uh, Jesus said, blessed, in, in our own words, blessed is he who's not offended at me, who's not offended at God. Uh, you know, somebody said that Jesus was the most offensive person that ever lived on earth. And you say, well, why? Why would he say that? Well, the Jews in general were offended at Jesus. In John 1 verse 11, it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, the scripture says the gospel itself, which is, that's the story of Jesus. He is the gospel. And he said it's a stumbling block to the Jews, a stumbling block. They were, in general, the Jews were offended by Jesus in what he had to say. You know, Jesus also uh, was, a, he offended the Pharisees. He exposed their hypocrisy. And so they were greatly offended by what he said. Matthew chapter 15 is a great example of that. And Matthew chapter 15, it tells us where Jesus said that, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees complained that his disciples ate with unwashed hands. And Jesus said, it's not what goes in the body that defiles you, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. And that offended uh, the Pharisees because their religion was a religion of the outside rather than the inside. And uh, also, he, was, uh, he, he offended the, un, the uncommitted people. In John chapter 6, you remember after some statements that he made, the scripture says that many of his disciples walked no more with him. And he turned to the disciples and said, Well, you also go away. And they, Peter said, To whom? You know, can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, of course, the disciples were all offended. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 26, 31, there in the garden, that they would be offended and they'd all leave him. And, you know, the Jews were offended with the concept of a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah. You know, they... They wanted a ruling Messiah. They wanted someone who would come and deliver them from the oppression and the slavery of the Roman Empire. But when Jesus came his first time, he came as the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53, you know, uh, tells us about the suffering Messiah. And they just couldn't wrap their brain around the suffering Messiah. Oh no, that can't be. We won't have this man, his brother, uh, Joe talked about to rule over us. And by the way, when people reject Jesus, they set themselves up for all kinds of deception. You know, the Antichrist is going to deceive people because they've rejected Christ. Did you know that? You go to, go to the book of Revelation and you find out that the people whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb... Those are the ones that will follow the Antichrist. Jesus said as much in, in Matthew, uh, John, rather, chapter 5, in verse, uh, I believe it's 31, somewhere along there, uh, Jesus said, you know, when somebody comes, you, I came in my Father's name and you didn't receive me, basically, just paraphrasing it, but said another will come in his own name 
and you'll receive it. You'll receive it. <clears throat> so, you know, I read uh, recently some statements from the Zionist movement in late 1800s, men that were trying to, uh, you know, find a homeland for the Jews. And they said, you give us a place. You carry us back to Jerusalem. A man that will carry us to Jerusalem and give us peace and guarantee our peace and we will proclaim him to be the Messiah. And that's what they're waiting on today. And they're going to be deceived. Many of them, of course, will be deceived. Now, why is it that people get offended at God? Why is it that people were, uh, would be offended at Jesus? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, in the case of John the Baptist, he was possibly become, coming to the place of offense because his exclamation point had become a question mark. He said, are you the one? He didn't have that question mark in, in Matthew chapter 3 and, and uh, Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 and John chapter 1 as he came on the scenes, as John came on the scenes and you know, the multitudes followed him and he proclaimed, he cried in the wilderness, you know, prepare you the way of the Lord. And he looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He had no uh, question mark. He had an exclamation point in his life. But some things had drastically changed. Had drastically changed. The second reason that people get offended at God because Life and ministry doesn't meet up to their expectations. What they expected to happen to them, they get offended at God. And the third reason is because there's no explanation. Terrible things happen. Trials come. Tribulations come. And God offers them no explanation for the trial. And they get offended at God. We'll look at some prime examples in Scripture in just a moment. The prime example of the exclamation point becoming a question mark here is John. You see, John, uh, he came with a thundering voice. The Bible tells us he came crying in the wilderness. Literally, the word cry there uh, in the Greek language is the word like the bellow of a cow. Oh, he just cried. He's screaming out. He's hollering. He doesn't have this eloquent voice. He's crying out with the power of God in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And multitudes began to follow him, the Bible says. All Judea and Jerusalem come out, one, one passage says. Luke says there's a multitude of folks that come to John at the Jordan to be baptized of him. And so... His ministry begins with an exclamation point. And then there's a three-day intersection in the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. As far as I know from Scripture, Jesus and John only cross paths three days. Think about it. Three days. As important as the ministry of John was to prepare the world for the Messiah. Prepare the world for Jesus. There were only three days in John's ministry that Jesus was present when John was ministering. And it's all in the book of John chapter 1. Notice what it says. In John chapter 1, it tells us the first day 
that uh, he said, there's one among you that I'm not even worthy to reach down and untie his shoes. There's one among you. That means that Jesus was present in the crowd, in the multitude that day. And then it tells us in John chapter 1 that uh, the next day, John seeth Jesus. It's in verse 29. The next day, the first day, he says, there's one among you I'm not worthy to unloose the shoes. The second day, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 29. Then the next day, verse 35, the third day. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples looking unto Jesus, looking upon Jesus, as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And those two disciples followed Jesus. The three-day intersection of the ministers of John the Baptist and Jesus had taken place. So for John, some things would change from that point on. You know, John felt unworthy, we already mentioned that, to untie the shoes of Jesus. John felt unworthy to baptize Jesus. He said, Jesus, you ought to baptize me. And John had a ministry of decreasing dimensions. It's in John chapter 3. When his disciples were concerned, Jesus is baptizing all these people. And he said, I must decrease. He must increase. And by the way, I believe that's one of the most, one of the three most important lessons of the Gospels that me and you as believers need to wrap our brain around. We need to understand. The other two, one is in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus said that that which the Father hath not planted will be rooted up. We need to learn that lesson. We need to realize that that's what trials and tribulations are about. That's what sufferings and afflictions are about for the believer more than anything else. Is there are things in my heart and in my life and in my mind that God did not plant. And he's in the business of rooting it up. He's in the business of, of getting us to loosen our grip on this world. <coughs> Somebody said to this old lady years ago, made the statement that I wear the world like a loose garment. Shed the world off as we need to. The second, the other lesson is in John 15 verse 5 as Jesus is making his way during the middle of the night from, from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. And he gives us a parable of the, of the vine and the branches. And he gives this lesson that he wanted the disciples to learn. For without me, you can do nothing. We have to be careful. Or we will be totally independent of God. You know, it's not important whether... A pastor is a missionary Baptist or a Southern Baptist or an independent Baptist or Bible Baptist. It don't matter. Are we a dependent Baptist? It's the only one that's going to matter. Are we dependent upon God? Do we realize that we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, a zero with the 
circle erased is all we can accomplish on our own. That'll count for eternity. <clears throat> John had this ministry of decreased dimensions, and we need to learn that lesson. I must decrease, but God must increase. See, John's loyalty to truth cost him his freedom. John reproved Herod the Tetrarch for his adultery. Tetrarch, interesting word. That's a Roman term. The Romans, one of the things they'd do, they'd appoint governors over a province, but also they'd take a larger province and divide it into four parts. Tetrarch, four, one-fourth. And uh, Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee, over one-fourth of a kingdom over that uh, the Romans had set up. And he offended. He had, uh, John offended him. He had taken his brother's wife, Philip, his brother's wife, uh, Philip, his brother, he had taken his, his wife from him, adultery. John was arrested and imprisoned. And so he spent the rest of his life in prison. <clears throat> Isolation and imprisonment created some doubts in his heart. I can understand that. Here's a man whose exclamation point had become a question mark because of his isolation. You know, Paul felt some of that. He said, only Luke is with me. <laughs> Demas hath forsaken me. You know, that was toward the end of his ministry in life. And only Luke is with me. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that a threefold cord is not easily broken. So here's John all alone in the jailhouse. And so he takes two of his disciples that come to visit him. He says, look, go, uh, go ask Jesus. Are you the one? He was so sure in John chapter 1. But are you the one? Or do we look for another? You notice that Jesus didn't send him a rebuke. He sent him some information. In fact, there in Luke it tells us he, at that point he did miracles in front of those disciples on purpose. And he said, go tell John what you hear and see. Tell him about the blind are made to see and the lame are made to walk. The lepers have been cleansed. The deaf are made to hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Just tell him that. There was no rebuke. Jesus understood the heart of John. Have you ever been in that kind of place in your life? Where you've had exclamation points, you know? You've had great victories in ministry. And then now you have question marks. Why God? Why God? God has some answers, but his answers are, I'm still at work. Just stay with me. I'm still at work. And he is. Now, the second reason that people get offended at God is because they have all these expectations. You know, in the book of Psalm 62, verse 5, David said his expectation, he gave those to God. His expectations were in God. You know, if, we, if our expectation truly is in God, we'll never be disappointed. 
We might get disappointed in ourselves. You ever do that? You know, I need to raise both hands. I get disappointed in myself. <laughs> I get disappointed in my own wickedness. I get disappointed in my own disobedience. I get disappointed in my own coldness. I get disappointed in my own foolishness. I get disappointed in my own sensuality. I get disappointed in my, my own lack of spirituality. But you know, our expectation needs to be of God. Now we could use David as an example. You know, David started out his, his public life as a hero. Man, he started out on top. And before long, he's an hunted animal, hiding in caves and dens. You say, well, David had all these expectations, but he gave his expectations to the Lord. You know, when the timing of God's clock doesn't match our timing, <laughs> we have expectations. We, you know, we're like the missionary that came to our church years ago and and he said, God is never late, but he sure misses some opportunities to be early. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, that's the thing about it. God has perfect timing. That's why he says in Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is a time to have a purpose. And so if we can, that, that's, that's why that uh, here's a young person, young people, they want to get married, but is it God's time yet? Make sure it's God's time, then it'll work out. Correctly. It's not the right person if it's not the right time. Because that person may be the person in the future, but that person is not what that person's going to be when God's timing comes along. If we're not careful, we'll get focused on our time clock and miss out on God's time clock. By the way, where does God dwell? It tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Isaiah chapter 57. Uh, talks about he that inhabiteth eternity. God dwells in eternity. He doesn't dwell in time. He dwells in eternity. So he's looking from eternity and he sees the complete picture. And that's why his timing is perfect. You know, we could look at Habakkuk. He was, his expectation was, was kind of messed up, you know, when he saw that God was going to use the Babylonians, a people more wicked than the, the uh, Jew, folks in Judah, uh, as uh, the instrument of God to bring judgment upon them. He was disappointed in that. We had to be careful that expectations are not misplaced or we will get bitter at God. Or we could be like Samuel. He was, you notice that Samuel was placed in such a vile place as a little boy. Oh, with those vile sons of Eli. But God placed him where he wanted him to be, where he could bloom and grow and hear from God in the midst of that. <clears throat> what about James and John when Jesus rebuked them? Are wanting to do things Elijah style there at Samaria and call down fire from heaven in John chapter 9. <laughs> oh, they could say, I'm mad at you, God. <laughs> I'm mad at you, Jesus. What about 
when a missionary is enjoying the blessings of God and injured beyond imagination. He's doing the will of God. He's where he's supposed to be in ministry. That was a good friend of ours. I grew up with him. He worked on my dad's farm when we were boys. And he was in the Philippines for 30-something years. And he was riding with a native pastor on the island of Mindanao. And a big, huge truck crushed their vehicle. And he was laying down on the ground, both legs broken, both hips broken, both arms broken, his jaw broken, teeth. He lost teeth. He's just laying there looking up to heaven. And worse than that, these Muslim people come out of the bushes and try to steal his riches and his shirt. And he's trying to hold on with those broken arms to his pants. And he's crying out to God, God, help me. Jesus, help me. And all of a sudden, a policeman arrives on the scene and runs him off. What a coincidence. <laughs> Amen. He said when he was in the emergency room, by the way, the Muslims killed, murdered that policeman a week later. And uh, he was laying in the hospital, so-called, you know, veterinary clinic kind of place. And he couldn't speak because his jaws were broken. and He knew there was a tooth that had gone down his trachea. He could feel it in there. So he said, I was laying there and I just, just real carefully inflate my lungs, and then I'd cough, <laughs> and the, he'd feel that tooth come up, and he kept on and kept on. And he said, finally, said I was laying there, and he went, "Phew!" <laughs> the tooth came out. Got long. It was long-term recovery for him. But why would God allow that to happen? God has a reason for everything. You know, that's where we need to camp out in Romans 8.28 when things happen. We need to camp there all the time, by the way. All things work together for good. What about when I expect a promotion on my job and, or my position, but it appears it will never come? Are you going to allow your expectations to... Uh, Hinder your walk with the Lord. The greatest example probably in the Bible of a man who had great expectations and let it kind of get the best of him for a while was Elijah. You know, he met Elijah with a single message in 1 Kings 17.1. I never had seen it until just recently. But in 17.1, you know, my focus always been that here Ahab meets uh, Elijah and Elijah said it's not going to rain. <laughs> That's not his first message. The first message was, as the Lord God of Israel liveth. That's his first message. God is alive. <laughs> and then he said his secondary message was, it's not going to rain. <laughs> of course, James chapter 5 offers us commentary on that event and says that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and it didn't. Then he prayed again, and it did. <laughs> you know, and Elijah enjoyed the power of prayer. Yeah. 
He went to the brook Cherith, and God used the ravens to feed him <laughs> until the brook dried up. Then he took him to a widow woman's house. Yeah, I think the Lord is giving Elijah lessons in humility. We need that, don't we? Pride is one of our biggest issues. I am my greatest problem. And so he fed him with ravens at Cherith, at Brook Cherith, and he fed him by a widow lady. <laughs> See, God was humbling him. And then the word of God of oh, the Lord came to old brother Ahab again and said, Now go meet Ahab. <laughs> All right, so here he comes again. He goes to Ahab and challenges him to a contest. Said, Get your 450 prophets of Baal and meet me on Mount Carmel. And he said to the people, How long halt you between two opinions? If God be God, then serve him. Baal be God and serve him. They answered him not a word. They're straddling the fence. He has the great contest. And God answers by fire. The 450 prophets of Baal are slain. He runs a marathon from Mount Carmel. Oh, oh by the way, before he does that, he prays. He, he says to his servant, there's a sound of abundance of rain. Hadn't rained three and a half years. So he told his his uh, servant looked toward the sea. By the way, from Mount Carmel, you can see the Mediterranean. And he said, look toward the sea. And he began to pray. And he said, what do you see? He said, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And he told Ahab, get down because it's fixing to come. <laughs> ah, get down off of this mountain. And it started raining. I mean, it was raining cats and dogs. Oh, no, that's the afternoon service. It raining cats and dogs. And he runs a marathon from there all the way to the city of Jezreel. Meets old Ahab coming in. Then Jezebel puts out this death warrant on him. And so he heads south, goes down to Beersheba, and he says, to God, just let me die here under this juniper tree. But the angels of God came and fed him. And he goes in 40 days in the strength of that angel's food to Mount Horeb. Gets to a cave. He starts spelunking. He goes to a cave. And God appears to him. God doesn't appear to him in the uh, whirlwind. He doesn't appear to him in the fire, he doesn't appear to him in the earthquake, he appears to him in a still small voice, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? He was here because of his expectations. He was expecting that when he had victory on uh, Mount Carmel, that there'd be a great revival in the nation that hadn't happened. He said, I'm the only one left, God, by myself. You ever felt that way? Ain't nobody else. Serving you. I'm by myself. You ever felt like that in your family? That you're the only one? I'm by myself? So God had a twofold message for old brother Elijah. He said, number one, he said, you've got work to do. Go anoint these three people. A king, two kings, and a prophet in your place. You've got work to finish. It's the second part of the message that he had for him 
was, you're not alone. There's 7,000 knees hadn't bowed to Baal. You just don't know where they are. <laughs> so, Elijah had great expectations. And so he was discouraged. He was downcast. But God says, no, you have work to finish. He felt like his, his, his ministry was a failure, you know. And God says, no, it's not a failure. You've got to finish your work that you have to do. He thought he was the only one left. It's so easy when we have great expectations and they're not met that we get angry at God. God, you didn't meet my expectations. You didn't give me the desires of my heart. Well, that maybe that was the desires of your heart, not of God's heart through you. But exclamation becomes a question mark. Our expectations are not met. They don't match up with what we expected. Our life doesn't. Then the last one. People get angry at God and get offended at God because they go through great trial and there's no explanation. The classic example of that is Job. Job was a man who feared God and eschewed evil, the scripture tells us. In Job chapter 1 verse 1. Or he hated evil. He was a, he was a great man of faith. In fact, he was... He was listed in the book of Ezekiel chapter 14 as one of the great intercessors of all time. He interceded for his children, seven sons and three daughters. He interceded for them. He asked God, God, would you bless them, you know? Don't let them get off into evil. He was all time praying. And when Satan came and presented himself before God, he presented himself to God as an accuser of the brethren. You know, the voice of Satan is found three times in the Bible. The first time in Genesis chapter 3, he's a great deceiver. Hath God said, he says to Adam and Eve, especially to Eve. In the book of Luke chapter 3 and uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4, as the temptation, he's the tempter. But here in the book of of Job, he's the accuser of the brethren. So he accuses Job before God. God says, Has thou considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan says, If you take away all his riches, then he'll curse you. He's serving you because you've blessed him so. You put this hedge around him. You won't let me at him. Let me at him. And you'll find he's a different person. So God said, yeah, you can have at him. You can take away his possessions. So in one day, he lost his uh, uh, 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 uh, yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, she-donkeys. Lost them all in one day. Then before that bad news is settled on his brain, he gets word your seven sons and three daughters were in a house and a tornado hit and it destroyed the whole house and killed them all. You have no children. What did he do? He said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I 
returns thither. I, I didn't have anything when I arrived on earth. I'll have nothing when I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then there's another conversation between God and Satan. And God says, I'll give you permission to touch his body. You can't take his life, you can touch his body. So he has sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's in total misery. He loses his health. He's lost his possessions. He lost his sons and his daughters. He lost his health. And then he lost his wife's support. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Then his three friends show up. Boy, with friends like that, who needs an enemy? In fact, they show up and they begin to falsely accuse him. He calls them, Job calls them forgers of lies, physicians of no value, and miserable comforters. (laughs) I mean, the bulk of the book of Job is is Job and the three friends, you know. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they're having this discussion back and forth, back and forth. They said, there's bound to be some secret sin in your life, Job. You bound to have been, uh, uh, committed adultery with some woman, killed him, all kinds of things. You have taken bread out of the mouth of the poor. You did something secretly. But you know, that wasn't his greatest trial. It wasn't the loss of his possessions or the loss of his children because they were in heaven. He didn't really lose them. It wasn't the loss even of his health or his wife's support or his friend's loyalty. His greatest trial was in the midst of all of it. God offered no explanation to him for why it happened. Me and you can read Job chapter 1, but he didn't have that to read. He was living this every day of his life. And he was crying out to God and God was wasn't answering him. Did you know that the book of Job never gives the answer to his questions? There were somewhere around seven of them that he had. The answers of Job to Job's questions are never answered until Jesus comes. He's the answer to all his questions that he had. But he was looking. And so... <laughs> Then all of a sudden in chapter 38 through 41, God speaks. And wow, does he speak. He speaks out of the whirlwind. He didn't speak to Elijah out of the whirlwind, but he spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. And he asked Job questions like, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation? See, what had happened in the early part of the book, it says in all this, Job sinned not with his lips. But Job did do a little slipping with his lips before it's over. Began to accuse God of being his enemy. And so God speaks to him out of the whirlwind and said, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes through all this. I mean, he reveals himself to him greatly. And after two chapters, you know, Job says, I've spoken things I shouldn't have spoken. (laughs) I spoke out of place, God. They're in chapter, what's that, chapter 40, I believe it is. Uh, first few verses. Then God speaks some more. 
And in Job chapter 42, when God quits talking, Job said, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know, there's nothing like me and you coming face to face with the true and living God. Job learned the most important lesson anybody could ever learn in life is we need revelation more than we need explanation. Job just needed to see God in the midst of his trial, and he did. And he said, Job, why don't you go pray for your friends? <laughs> Woo! <clears throat> that was a test. <laughs> go pray for your friends. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. God told his friends, don't come to me with your prayers. Go ask Job to pray for you. <laughs> God set this up. You know, God, is he sets things up. <laughs> you know, he instigates. You know, he's working on both sides of things. You can have a person bitter... <laughs> And uh, God works on both sides of it. So Job comes through this, and he finds out that revelation is more important than explanation. God didn't explain himself. God didn't explain his trials. He just revealed himself to him. He said, here I am, Job. Here I am. Now, let's make some application here. <laughs> You've been tithing and giving on a regular basis and your life is now in adversity. You know, I had a man one time, his mother asked me to go see him in jailhouse. He was in jail over in Mississippi, per county jail at Poplarville, Mississippi. So I went over to see him. He was in jail. He was in, in jail for uh, cotton checks or something in Anyway, it was somebody else's fault. <clears throat> I had to tell his mother, said, you know, he's not got low enough yet. But he's blaming somebody else for his being in jail. <clears throat> I don't know, a month or two passed, and somebody knocked on my office door, and it was this young man. <clears throat> he came in, and uh, he said he was going to get him a job. He had, he had hair bound down to here. And I told him, I said... I said, you going to go get you a job? He said, yeah, I'm going to get me a job. I said, did you know that if you work for a man that you represent his company, and he may not want you his company to look like you do? <laughs> I was just playing with it. He said, you know, I never thought about that. I may need to get my hair cut. Said, well, yeah, maybe so. But anyway, in the process of our visiting together, he said, Brother Baker, I've decided to give God 30 days. To work in my life. And I'm going to give, give Christianity 30 days to work. And if it don't, I'm out of here. So, okay. Well, I told him it would probably take 31 at least. <laughs> you know. But he was going to give God 30 days. The next time I heard of him, he was in the Louisiana State Prison for child molestation. He had great expectations that. Religion would work for him, but it didn't. You know, you find a person that uh, is faithful to God and finds 
themselves in the hospital, sick, some terrible disease. Find praying, faithful parents, and all of a sudden, one of their children is a worldling and in rebellion. Oh God, what's going on? Find a man seeking after God. It seems like the windows of heaven are closed. Just no crack in heaven. I'm talking about when your blood pressure is up and your bank account's down. <laughs> you ever been there? When the waves of weakness overwhelm the soul. When the days of weirdness overshadow past victories and hardly remembers the victories. The victories are just distant memories in your life. And the clouds of sorrow have obscured the sun, S-O-N. <laughs> just can't see Jesus in the midst of your trial that you're going on. When the winds of adversity have driven you off course. When you have lost the wonder of it all and you begin to wonder. W-A-N-D-E-R. When confidence is replaced by worry, when faith is overcome by doubt, when you're in the dungeon of discouragement. That's where Brother John the Baptist was. He was in the dungeon of discouragement. When you hear, need to hear some kind words from a dearest friend. John heard those words, didn't he? Go tell John. Don't go rebuke him. Don't make him try to feel bad. Go tell John what you've seen and heard. <laughs> go tell John. By the way, God wants us to hear from him a lot more than we want to hear from him. Maybe it's when you need to understand that God is still working and that your ministry is not a failure and there's more work to do. Like Brother Elijah when God spoke with a still, small voice, He didn't speak through the thunder and the lightning and the whirlwind and through the fire and the earthquake. He spoke with a still, small voice. This kind voice. He spoke to Elijah. When you need God to speak with authority in the midst of your greatest trial like Job and God shows up and oh, wow, does he show up. Do you need a, a revival today of joy unspeakable? Are you experiencing that in your Christian life? Joy unspeakable and full of glory, Peter said. That's what God wants me and you to experience even in the midst of the storms and trials of this life. Yeah, we're supposed to be like Jeremiah, burdened down with the Messages of the day, but we also need to have the joy unspeakable. That's our strength, according to the book of Nehemiah. Maybe you need a fresh breath of the peace of God that passeth all understanding. I used to not do that, but I got to where just about every time I pray now, I say, God, give me your peace. Jesus, as he was getting ready to leave this world, told his disciples, peace I give unto you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. But God, give me your peace in the midst of the storm. The peace that passeth all understanding. That Ephesians, uh, I mean Philippians 4, 6 talks about. Do you need a new embrace of the exceeding great and precious promises of God? There was a man 
we used to cross paths with at camp there with the Navajo camp years ago. He's with the Lord today. There's a brother that we'd cross paths with, and he would uh, bring the morning devotionals usually at camp. And, and you'd get there to uh, the uh, tabernacle, and there he'd be. And he'd stand there, and he said, Brother Baker, come and give me a big hug. I need one this morning. I need a big hug. I need your the strength that God has through you. Give me a hug. And he'd just grab bear hug you and wow, wow. <clears throat> he came to Aaron Laura's wedding. <laughs> Flew down from Oklahoma City. But uh, me and you need a fresh embrace of the exceeding great and precious promises of God. <laughs> Woo! I mean, this book's full of them. We're talking about standing on the promises. We need the promises to embrace us and empower us. The Word of God. Oh, wow. Let me ask you one real serious question. What can move me? Ask yourself that question. What can move me to doubt? What can move me today to discouragement? To disillusionment? What can lead me there? You know, David said that I won't dare let that come to me. He said, because my heart's fixed. My heart's fixed praising God. You know, David, it says of David in 1 Samuel 30 that he, uh, he encouraged himself in the Lord. I used to wonder, well, how did he do it? I'd like to find out. Well, the book of Psalms tells us, Psalm 56. There's this question between David and himself. said, why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Trust thou in God. Live by faith. Amen? Just live in my faith. Paul, so what will cause you to move from the fixed position, trusting in God and praising God? What will it... What is it that will move you from uh, uh, finishing your mission? You know, Paul talks about that in Acts 20, verse 24. He says, I've got some. i got to finish. i got to finish my course. i got to finish it. He said, none of these things move me. Everybody, where he goes? He said, you're going to go to Jerusalem. going to be arrested. Wow, it's going to go bad for you. He said, none of those things move me. Because I've got to finish my course. He had, he had a threefold ministry to, to do. Preach to the Jews, to the Gentiles. And the kings, he still hadn't preached to kings, but now he's going to have his privilege in the jailhouse. He'll preach to kings. You know, Jesus, the reason the Samaritans rejected him, the scripture says in Luke chapter 9, this is Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem. He goes through Samaria from north to south. That's when John and James wanted to call down fire from heaven. They would not receive Jesus because his face was set, as it were, to go to Jerusalem. Jesus would not be deterred from his full and final and most important mission on earth. And that was the cross. By the way, the cross was not a plan B for God. 
He didn't catch God by surprise. It was plan A. There was only one plan, and that was plan A. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, on the cross, died for mine your sin. So, how are you with God today? Are you being discouraged? Are you in doubt? Why don't you bring those doubts to this altar? You discouraged today? Why don't you bring that discouragement right here to this altar before God? Lord, would you speak to us in this invitation time as pastor stands before us? Lord, we want to hear from you in the midst of our trial and tribulation of this day. We want no explanation. We just want revelation. We want you to reveal yourself to us. And our expectation, Lord, is of you. Our question marks, we bring them and put them on your altar because we're trusting in you today. Lord, bring personal revival to our hearts and homes and to our churches in Jesus' name.